continuing today in our studies through Genesis, uh, looking at the life of Joseph and his brothers and his family. Uh, Today, looking at a slightly larger passage, so just a reminder that the pace is a little different in narrative. We're going to be flying at about 30,000 feet today, and we're going to pick up where we can, but there's a lot here, uh, and so hopefully, uh, Lord willing, we will pull out some of the things that God's people need to see. Uh, But today, chapter 44, and reading through uh, chapter 45, verse 15. So beginning chapter 44, verse 1. That begins on page 38, if you picked up a Bible on the way in, uh, 38, uh, but Genesis chapter 44, beginning in verse 1, and we will read through chapter 45, uh, verse 15. Before uh, we come to God's Word, let us go to Him again in prayer, seeking His blessing. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, You who spoke out of the darkness and created light, We pray that as we read your word, living and active, you would speak into our hearts, cause us to see the glory of God in the face of Christ by the work of your spirit in your people today. Draw us to greater faith and obedience and comfort and consolation in you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 44 into 45. Then... Excuse me, this is picking up. Last week, uh, they had just uh, drank with Joseph and were merry with him, and this is obviously the next morning. Then, then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. We also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to him, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup 
has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him of the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. 
Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers, and he wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, today at last... We have come to the closing of the saga, not the end of our studies in Genesis, but at least the closing of the saga between Joseph and his once hateful brothers, this grand climax where finally it's out in the open and there is reconciliation and there is weeping and these brothers who at one time could not speak a word of peace to Joseph come and they all speak with one another and it is an amazing moment in the life of this family. It's the kind of resolution that every broken family longs for, and yet in this life, so few seem to achieve. Perhaps you remember my statement when we were going through Genesis 42. I said at that point that we were not yet at the happy ending. Well, here we are at last. After that sermon on Genesis 42, I had two conversations with two different people And they had two different readings of what I said when I said, we're not yet at the good part. One person agreed with me and said, I can't wait until we get to the good stuff. The other person disagreed with me. I said, no, 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 it's it's all been good the whole way through. Here's, Here's God putting pressure where pressure needs to be put. And this is exactly what these brothers need. And praise the Lord that God hasn't let go of them. And he's still working. And it's all good the whole way through. I, I, I can wait. I'm, I'll be glad to get there, but, but I can hold out a little bit longer. Now, you will think that it's very diplomatic of me. This is a, an area where I'm trying to grow. It's very diplomatic of me, but I think both of those people were right. The person who agreed with me and the person who disagreed with me. Because yes, this is the happy ending we have been looking for and it is the tension that has been building since chapter 37 and finally it's released and they weep with one another and they rejoice with one another and they embrace one another. And here is the close of this rift between the family. But all along the way, yes, God has been at work such that we can look back over every sordid detail and every twist and turn in the story and we can say, look at what the Lord has done. If I were preaching this sermon for the Hallmark Channel, we'd probably use some sort of cliche about the journey being such and such the destination. This is not the Hallmark Channel, so we'll simply uh, take Joseph's word for it, that the Lord has been working his purposes in the lives of these men from beginning to end. That's what he says. In 45, chapter 5, he says, You sold me, but God sent me before you. That's what Joseph is telling us. God has been at work the whole way through. God has been working deliverance for his people. God was securing what he calls this remnant on the earth. 
And he's calling his brothers not just to look behind the facade of his Egyptian countenance. He's been stern with them, and he has played a role against them, and and he has threatened them. And he's not just telling them, here's the secret you need to see that I'm actually your brother. He says, look behind the curtain of everything that you've seen over the last 22 years, and here's what you need to realize, that God has been moving and working in all of it. That's the secret that Joseph wants his brothers to know. That's the secret, I think, that Joseph would have us to know today. And the wonder of this story is that even though up until the very last moment, these brothers had no idea as to Joseph's identity, I think they were starting to figure out this other secret on their own. They had no idea until Joseph finally said, I'm your brother, and still they were dismayed. The King James says, terrified, Uh, And they weren't really sure, but we've seen faith growing in in little increments in these brothers. We've seen their lives being changed as they're realizing more and more that God is active in the world in which they live. He is directing their family. He is, yes, even putting pressure where pressure needs to be applied to, uh, to show them their sin. And so even before Joseph makes his declaration in chapter 45, These men are believing that God is at work in the world and that is changing the way that they are living. It changes the way that each of these men live in at least three ways. First, uh, when they believe that God is at work in the world, uh, they become quick to confess. Second, they become slow to offend. And lastly, we see them able to forgive. This is what God does in the lives of us today as well. When we recognize that he's working in the world, he makes us quick to confess, slow to offend, and able to forgive. Let's look at that first one with the brothers as they're leaving Egypt and as they are caught in this trap. The narrative picks up with the brothers still bleary-eyed. They are barely awake. It is early on the morning after a night of celebration, and they are leaving with their donkeys carrying as much grain as they can possibly carry. And you might imagine their conversation as they leave. They're still trying to make sense of what happened. And how is it that we thought the worst was going to happen and the best had actually happened and maybe they're congratulating themselves for making a friend in very high places and they're all still wondering. Because their donkeys are carrying so much grain, they're moving quite slowly and it's not long before the sound of faster hooves start to catch up to them. Maybe it was one man on horseback, maybe it was a chariot, maybe several chariots, enough horsepower, enough manpower certainly to stop 11 suspected thieves, leaving the second most powerful man in Egypt's palace. Then the accusation comes that they are ungrateful, they are irreligious, they have a wonderful night of feasting at Joseph's table and they've stolen the fine china on the way out. Actually, it's a little bit more involved than that. It uses this idea of a cup for divination, and the idea of a cup is probably a little bit misleading. Think of a small punch bowl, not a tiny little vessel, but something large, uh, and something that uh, you might think of, uh, of women sitting in some tea parlor somewhere, and when everyone's done, one of the women says, hand me your cups, and I'll look at the tea leaves in the bottom, and I'll tell your fortune, and and what sort of tall, dark, handsome man is going to come your way. And it's that same sort of idea. At this time, the ancients would have done it by uh, lots of different ways, really, in Egypt. But one of the ways they would have done it is by pouring one liquid into another. 
sometimes oil into water or wine into oil, and they would see the way the liquids move and change and the patterns that are developed, and they would try to discern some message, some omen from the gods. It was this sort of thing. It was a, a religious cultic ritual, and that's what you do. When you have no revelation from the Lord, that's how paganism finds meaning. In a seemingly senseless world, it resorts to myth and magic and, and fortune-telling. And so you look for patterns in birds and in entrails of slaughtered animals, and it's just grasping for straws. And here's this picture that's given, that they've stolen this thing that is so important in this pagan culture. Now, the scholars are divided. Even scholars that we really appreciate are divided on whether or not Joseph actually used this cup for this purpose. I tend to think that he didn't. I think you should think the same. <laughs> and that's because what we've seen already from Joseph is that he is a man who, who has no need of the magical arts, of all the paganism and the myth and all of that stuff. Remember when Pharaoh drew him out of the dungeon and he gave him a chance Maybe there's some special power in you, Joseph, and I've heard it said that you can hear a dream and interpret it, and he said, no, it's not in me, but God will give a favorable answer. Here was a man who waited for God to speak and waited for revelation, and yes, the Lord had his prophet Joseph right there, but it wasn't divination, and it wasn't witchcraft, and this is all part of the ruse. It's another part of the play acting that Joseph is using. These men are being tested to see if they have done some evil deed, and they are so sure that they are innocent. You see how sure they are of themselves. They start with some logic. In verse 8, who in their right mind would bring money back only to steal something again? No thief would do that. It is clearly, this uh, would show you what our character is like. And then there's a little bit of bravado. Look, if you can find this cup with any one of us, that man will die and we will all be servants. It's a little over the top for a cup. Even a cultic cup. Even stolen from a very important and powerful man. But they are so sure that they say, no, 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 no. You can kill whoever has it because we are sure that we haven't done this. And they quickly lower their bags to the ground. Sure, do a search. We've got nothing to hide. You might imagine that as they start with Reuben and they go on down the line, the men are getting more and more sure of themselves, and, and they're sure that they are innocent. And then the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, and their bravado melts into heartbreak. And for a brief moment, they become like a sad old man who has just learned that his son has been torn by wild beasts in the wilderness, and they tear their clothes. That was the last person we saw doing that. When they did that dastardly deed and sold their brother and they rose up to comfort their father while he was mourning and tearing his clothes, now mourning has come home to these men. And they all return with their brother back to Joseph. They begin that long, shameful walk back into the palace. And when they get there, Joseph speaks. And he says something very simple. There are two parts to it. Joseph says to them, what is this deed that you have done and do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? That's all he says. It's all that we have recorded. And uh, he's, he's asking them. Uh, he accuses them of guilt and he chides them for trifling with a man of magical powers. Could you really think 
that you could hide your crimes from someone who could practice divination, who almost had a sort of a crystal ball that he could look in, and he would have known where that cup was. And could you think that you would escape with this deed that you're doing? And how do they respond? Well, how would you respond, actually? If you were in uh, their place, and you knew that you had done nothing wrong, that you had not taken the cup, you had not tried to escape, you weren't even the one who filled the sack with grain in the first place. You showed up first thing in the morning and off you went, and you've got to know that you're being framed. And so how would you respond? Here stands this man, speaking of divination and secret knowledge, and they are being framed. And Joseph says, what have you done, and don't you know that I am? Don't you know who I am, rather? And they change the subject. They say, what can we say? God has found us out. You see, there is some evil lurking that has not yet been accounted for. There is some deed that they were uh, apprehensive about, that their consciences were already beginning to be pricked concerning the deed that they had done against their brother, And when they confess to Joseph, although they don't realize they're confessing to the man that they have wronged, this is what they're confessing to. They're not saying that God has found out the wrong of stealing some cup. They're not worried. They're not intimidated because Joseph is a man with magical arts. They know that God is at work in all of this. Judah, at least, is beginning to see it. They're not in danger because Joseph can read patterns. They're standing where they are and they're facing what they're facing because God works in the world that he's created. And when God works, he does not allow sin to go unnoticed. There's the conviction that began all the way back in chapter 42. The last time these men stood before Joseph and they stood under the shadow of accusation And he said, I want to test you and I want to try you, but I'm a man. He begins to speak of the fear of God. He begins to speak of the danger of injustice. And their consciences are resuscitated. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And now maybe for a year, a year and a half, this is the same guilt that's been weighing on them. And over that year or year and a half, They've learned more and more about God's work in the world and his claim over all things. And faith is beginning to be shaped in these men. And they're learning more about the weight of their guilt. And their awakened consciences finally become confessing consciences. And there's something of humility growing in these men. There's something of the recognition that the best thing that you can do with your sins is just to confess them already. And throw yourself at the mercy of God. There's a proverb that they would never have read yet. It hadn't been written, but they're learning it by experience. And it says this in Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. They're learning that here in Joseph's court. But the message that they're learning and the truth that they're learning in that proverb is really just another way of saying that God is doing something in the world that he created. Here's the way Jesus said it when he showed up. Jesus came into Galilee, Mark chapter 1, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. 
That's what happens when you begin to believe that God is at work in the world. It makes you quick to repent. That's what Jesus said. The kingdom is coming. God is working. Here's how you respond. You repent and you believe. And that's what faith does in this world that God owns. We recognize that God is king and God is judge and he is the giver of mercy and the one who forgives sins and it makes us quick to confess. Well, faith in God's work also makes us slow to offend. And it's almost impossible uh, for anyone who's studied this whole Joseph narrative not to be impressed by this, uh, this great uh, statement that Judah makes, this speech that he makes in the second half of this chapter. Here we see a man of incredible integrity, willing to stand by this pledge that he has made to be a, a safety for Benjamin, resolved to do what is right. And Judah, we find, is the first man in Scripture who is willing to give his life in place of another person. He's the first person who embodies that love that Jesus told us about. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's what he's willing to do, to lay down his life for his brother. He recounts almost the entire story up to, the chapter, uh, up to verse 33, and then he makes that, that offer. Now, therefore, here's the culmination. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back to his brothers. And that's incredible, isn't it? The change that the Lord has worked in Judah. Just a few chapters ago, we saw him all too eager to follow his own desires, and to look out for number one. And now his love for Benjamin is so great that it brings Joseph to tears. Joseph, who had such patience, and Joseph, who was so calculating as to wait out seven years of famine to, to help the land of Egypt gather all that they needed. And he sees this love embodied in his brother, and he is broken, and the facade is shattered. But what we need to see about Judah is not just his love for Benjamin. We need to see his love for Jacob. Because that was what was foremost in Judah's mind. That was the reason that he was willing to suffer for Benjamin. That was the reason that he was willing to offer himself. Let the boy go back, he says in verse 33. And we say, well, why would you let the boy go back? Well, read on to verse 34. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. That's why he's going to stay, because he's concerned about Jacob. You see, in verse 17, the whole thing began, and when Joseph gave them that improbable scenario, I'm going to keep Benjamin and the rest of you, you go up in peace to your father. And for 16 verses, Judah rehearses how there is no possible way that there can be peace with Jacob if Benjamin is not there. And he is unwilling to sin against his father. He is slow to offend. And that is not the way things used to be. 22 years ago, the brothers had no problem with their father's grief. 22 years ago, the brothers filled their pockets with silver and they sent along that bloody cloak. And then when they came home, they all rose up to comfort their father with empty words of consolation. And in their hearts, they are treating him with contempt and hatred because they have taken the son that he loves and they're giving false comfort. But now Judah turns and he refuses to grieve his father. 
I wonder if you were in Judah's place, how many excuses you could find for why you should not get to go back instead of Benjamin. How many ways could you justify saving your own skin rather than sending your little brother home? Maybe you could find somebody else to blame. You know, this wasn't uh, your plan uh, to begin with. This is a situation that you didn't really want. Uh, in fact, we didn't even want to bring Benjamin down here. Judah mentions that. He mentions that excuse. Notice the way that he speaks in that first paragraph, verses 19 through 23. He acknowledges that Joseph was the one who was pushing the story, wasn't he? And there is this you said, we said dynamic going back and forth. Follow the dialogue, verses 19 to 23. You said, do you have a brother? And we said, we sure do, but he's pretty special. And you said, bring him down. And we said, we couldn't do that. And you said, you must. You see, it's been foisted upon them. It's not something that they wanted. You can almost hear the gears turning. Here is an out. Here's an option. I can just say, well, you know, I didn't choose this path. I didn't put the cup in Benjamin's sack, and maybe I can save myself a little hardship, and I can find a way around, and Dad will get over it, maybe. And if not, I mean, he's already 130 years old. And so I can do that, and you can find so many different excuses, and you can blame someone else. And if Jacob should be mad at anyone, it's that guy down there in Egypt who has his son. But then again, maybe Jacob, well, he was to blame. Maybe he didn't really deserve Judah's compassion. You know, Judah, uh, Jacob, rather, he'd always had his two favorite sons, didn't he? There was a pedestal, and up on this height, uh, there were Rachel's two boys, and down groveling in the dirt, and it was everybody else. It's not a very diplomatic statement if verse 27 is a quote from their father. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know my wife bore me two sons. What about the rest of us, Dad? What about Leah? What about Bilhah and Zilpah? And what about the rest of the sons who are here before you? And how can you say your wife, singular, bore you two sons, only two? What about the rest of us? And hadn't Judah been mistreated by his father Jacob? Hadn't Judah been sinned against? He wasn't given his fair due. The, his father loved the two youngest one, and it wasn't fair. They, they shouldn't be the favorites. He was older them, than them, and he had more seniority than them. And why should Judah protect this father of his who picked favorites among his children? I wonder if you've ever justified your selfishness or your sin in ways like that. That you were stuck in a situation that you didn't choose, that you've been mistreated, that you've been sinned against, and you're envious, or you're angry, or you were overlooked. And so why should you care about somebody else when it is so much easier to throw your own little pity party? Why should you be patient with that waitress who's giving you such terrible service? Why should you continue to speak kindly to your neighbor who just pushes every single one of your buttons? Why should you continue to speak of the grace of Christ to that co-worker of yours that thinks you're some loony religious nut? And they're tired of hearing of it. And, and Jesus this and Jesus that. Or what about in the church? Why should you bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ? Well, you do that because that's what faith does. When you believe that God is at work in the world, faith believes that even if you are wronged, even if you are mistreated, even if you are sinned against, 
God is still on his throne. He is still at work in the world. And faith will honor God's kingship over our comfort. This is the example we have from Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, it says this, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. That is something we ought to follow by faith. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what faith does. It recognizes that God is at work in the world that belongs to him And rather than just following the footsteps of Judah, it follows the footsteps of the lion of the tribe of Judah who came and suffered in our stead, who entrusted himself to the judge of all the earth, though he was wrong, though he was mistreated, though he was spat upon and mocked and hit and persecuted, he continued. And he did not offend. He did not revile. He entrusted himself to the Lord because he knew that God was at work in the world, and that's what faith does, brothers and sisters. So when we believe that God is working in his world for the good of his people, we change in a few ways. We are quick to confess, and we we are slow to offend, and we also become able to forgive. Here now we need to look at Joseph, because here was a change that that God had been working in him. He was preparing him to meet his brothers at this very place. And it almost seems, as you read this, that, that forgiveness was this burden on Joseph's soul. This is what he wanted more than anything else. Finally, it comes to the place where there, his brothers are willing to confess, and he is quick to meet them, quick to send away all the other Egyptians, and quick to be with his brothers, and to lower that facade, and take off that mask of the Egyptian ruler, and to proclaim to them, I am your brother, and he moves so quickly to drawing them near, and to speaking promises to them, and to telling them, don't beat yourselves up over what happened. You are forgiven, completely forgiven, and I love you and I want you to be here with me. That's the burden on his heart. That's the real Joseph. They thought he was stern. They thought he was a a hard man. They thought that he was going to imprison them and harm them. But the real Joseph is that he wanted to forgive them and draw them near. This is so very backward from the way that we sometimes extend forgiveness and the way that we sometimes experience forgiveness. Sometimes we will extend forgiveness to others because we know that's what we ought to do. And so we pull our bootstraps and I forgive you. It's okay. It's it's out of my mind. Don't worry about it. But there's a lag between the words that are coming out of our mouth and where our heart is able to catch up. And it's a struggle sometimes. And the real us doesn't want to forgive. But that's the facade that we put on until our heart catches up. This is backwards from what Joseph is doing. This is the real Joseph. I want to forgive you. I want to draw you near. Or maybe you've been told by somebody else that they've forgiven you for a wrong that you've committed. You come to find out later that they're still holding that secret grudge. And bitterness has been festering under the surface. But in Joseph, we see that forgiveness is almost fighting to be known. And this is forgiveness uh, like the forgiveness that we receive from the Lord. 
is full and it is free and it is completely undeserved. And it meets these brothers as soon as they come to the place of repentance. We see here in Joseph the the best kind of forgiveness that can be experienced from one person to another because it mirrors something of the pardon of God. The way that he loves and forgives and draws near. I want you to notice two things especially about this forgiveness that Joseph extends to his brothers. One, you need to see that this is not simply ignoring sin. Notice verses 4 and 5. He mentions the sin they had committed against him twice. I am Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And don't be angry with yourselves, because you sold me into Egypt. He doesn't say, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's just forget about it. Let's not talk about it. He acknowledges their sin. Sometimes we conflate the ideas of forgiveness and forgetfulness. You know, love keeps no record of wrongs. And so how do you get over something with a spouse or with a friend or with a father or a sibling? You say, "Eh, let's just not talk about it. Let's just let it go. let's Let's just forget it. Let it fade into the background. But true forgiveness doesn't simply ignore sin. That's not the way God deals with our sins. If God were simply to ignore our sins, he would not be righteous. He would not be holy. He would not be just. In order for our sins against the Lord to be dealt with, they need to be done away with. In order for them to be uh, removed, they have to be taken away, not simply ignored. This is what we find about Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, it tells us the Messiah was a servant of God who has borne, that is, carried our griefs, carried our sorrows, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How does God forgive his people? He doesn't say, just forget about it. He says, here are your sins, and I place them on Christ. The burden and the guilt of all of it, I see it, and it's right there, but it's taken care of, and it's done away with. We find it in Colossians chapter 2. It says, We who were dead in our trespasses, in the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The next word is by. Having forgiven our trespasses by, simply letting them escape into the ether, watching them disappear and dissolve into thin air. No, the Lord has forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God does not deal with sin by evaporating it. He deals with sin by bearing it in the person of Jesus. Real forgiveness is not the same thing as mere forgetfulness or ignorance. There is a carrying away of the burden and the guilt of our sin. And what we find in Joseph is something like the forgiveness of God. He doesn't turn a blind eye to what his brothers have done, but he is willing to bear the weight of what they've done. He's willing to live and to be settled with the weight of what they've done in a way that will not hinder his love toward them? Is there not a a weight that exists between two people who are at strife with one another, an emotional burden? Sometimes it's almost palpable when one has, has, uh, has done something against the other, has sinned against another person. You can almost feel it in your interactions with them. And just forgetting that and hoping it will go away never does anything to carry away 
the guilt and the burden and the weight of that sin. But Joseph deals with it, and he deals with it by carrying it and choosing to forgive them, not simply choosing to ignore them. And as God works in his people by his spirit, this is how he allows us to forgive one another, to acknowledge sin, not just to cover it, but to say, I see it, and I know it, and I will love you anyway. And this sin will not stand in the way of how I will treat you. That is forgiveness. It is very often a conscious choice, but it is empowered by the Spirit working in His people to make us able to forgive. This is what's happening in Joseph. But the other thing you need to know about this forgiveness is that true forgiveness takes its strength from God's work of deliverance. This is what he says. He names their sin and then he releases it. I'm Joseph who you sold into slavery and do not be angry or distressed because you sold me here. And we say, why? And the answer is because he believed that God was sovereignly working deliverance. We see it three times in this passage. God was doing something behind the scenes that these brothers never could have imagined at the moment that they were selling him off into slavery. What were they doing? They were freely choosing to get rid of their brother. It was sin. He doesn't deny that. They did sell him. But behind all of that, God is working to send Joseph. He says it three times. Verse 5, you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. He says it in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. He says it in verse 8, it was not you who sent me here but God. You see, Joseph believed that God was working deliverance for his family for the covenant people of God, and he forgave them and he welcomed them. He said he would, he would provide for them, he would sustain them in this new land while the famine continued. And through Joseph, God's provision for this family would come to them. The Lord would be working his purposes in his people. There is just a hop, skip, and a jump from the end of the rest of Genesis, where we see in the next few weeks, 70 persons coming down into Egypt until the people grow into a multitude, maybe one and a half, maybe two million people by the time of the Exodus. That was part of God's promise all the way back to Abraham. Your, your descendants will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs for four generations, and they will come out a multitude, and God is working his purposes, and Joseph sees beyond all this, and he says, this is the mechanism, your sin against me, this is what God is doing to bring us here and to cause us to grow and to cause us to flourish and to cause us to do what the Lord would have us to do. And his forgiveness of his brothers comes from recognizing God's deliverance. You say, well, that's nice for Joseph when he has to forgive somebody. But your forgiveness doesn't have the same implications. God is not bringing his people into Egypt to grow them into a great multitude. Our forgiveness of one another doesn't have the same significance that he had because we actually already have deliverance from the Lord. We're not, we're not waiting for deliverance from the Lord. It's full and it's complete in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins and grace and mercy at the cost of his son and redemption and life in the kingdom of God. But it doesn't mean that our forgiveness has nothing to do with deliverance. It's simply the order in which it occurs. You see, Joseph's forgiveness was a precursor to the deliverance of God's people, and our forgiveness is a product 
the deliverance of God's people. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to turn there with me, and this is where we're going to end today. Because God still has a purpose to grow his people. Not in Egypt, not as sojourners in a land where there is, uh, there is uh, all sorts of evil and strife. Uh, well, maybe, yes, uh, that, that is where he's growing us. Uh, but, uh, but he has a purpose to grow his people. We see it in Ephesians chapter 4. God is still preserving his remnant on the earth, and he gives a command to his church. Verses 15 and 16. It says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, to grow, to flourish, to, to, to be built up and sustained. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the mandate that we have. God's people are still growing, hopefully in number, but certainly in faith and in grace one to another. There's still a growth that happens in God's people. And our forgiveness is still a part of that growth. The purposes that, that God has for his covenant people, our forgiveness plays a part in that. Keep looking down in the, the paragraphs that follow. He tells them some of the ways that, that this happens, that the body grows and builds itself up in love. He tells them to put away falsehood. He tells them to speak truth one with another. This is verse 25. Verse 26, he tells them not to let the sun go down on their anger. Verse 31, he tells them, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then the capstone, verse 23, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is where our forgiveness for one another comes from. It comes from deliverance recognizing that Christ has forgiven us and recognizing that he's at work in the world and at work in his church and he has a purpose to build us and to grow us and to strengthen us. And it happens as we put away bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander among us as we begin to forgive one another because we recognize what God is doing. This is what happens when faith looks to God's work in the world. It changes us in at least these three ways. It makes us quick to confess slow to offend, and able to forgive. Would you join me as we pray? O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to grow more in grace as we see your work in us, as we see your work in the church, as we believe what you are doing, O oh Lord. Would you work in us and shape us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. come now to a table that proclaims the forgiveness of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself as a ransom for many.